I want to speak to us, uh, you know, about uh, living in the power of love. Living in the power of love. That sounds like a Diana Ross uh, song. Um, living in the power of love. And I, I want to stress that word power because uh, love is sometimes seen as, uh, you know, something like gooey and, and kind of mushy and, and even weak sometimes. And I tell you, there's nothing more powerful than love. No force in the universe. More than nuclear energy, more than a weapon of any sort. Love is a very powerful thing. And when you live in it and you practice it, it makes you a very powerful human being as well. And uh, these next few Sundays, whenever I can preach, I'm going to kind of center us on that whole dimension of the Christian life. Why? Because I think that uh, it's an antidote to so much of the, of the confusion that we see today in our nation and all over the world. The conflict, the anger, righteous indignation, the sense of uh, violation that uh, many of us feel, the insecurity, the resentment, and so on and so forth, the, the retribution and the getting back and, and the manipulation that we experience in our political world and the and the aggressiveness that is, has been set loose all over the world, the competition, the, the maneuvering for superiority and, and power to control. I mean, you know, this world is right now defined. It's almost like a Darwinian jungle. Um, despite all the sophistication of modern culture, um, we're back maybe at the Stone Age only with more sophisticated weaponry, including disinformation, fake news, and so on and so forth. But it's all just a, that struggle. And uh, in these times, you know, it's important not to just be combating evil, addressing it, naming it, and fighting it. That's important. But, you know, the gospel is not about um, fighting evil. The gospel is about affirming good, amen? It's about declaring the goodness of God and the blessing of God. And you fight evil with good. You overwhelm evil with good. So even as we address evil, I think that there's a lot more power in affirming and proclaiming good. And if you live in the goodness of God, then evil simply has to take a back seat or disappear. It's like when you, when you, have, when you went into a dark room, you don't, you don't say, oh, darkness, be gone. No, you simply switch on the light. And light is so much more powerful than darkness, it would just dispel it. Actually, darkness is the absence of light, really. That's what it is. And evil is the absence of good. So as you name good, as you affirm good, you actually put a light on the world, turn it on. And darkness has to flee. As you live in the goodness of God and in the goodness of the principles of the Word of God, darkness will not have a hold on you. It will not have power on you. So you have to live in the power of love. And this is what Matthew chapter 5, I want to read. Actually, I'm just going to, in the interest of time, let me just read from beginning with verse 43. But you can also read, if you have your Bible later on, also in uh, 38, well, actually, I'm going uh, uh, to refer to something here. So, let, you know, despite my best intention, I'm going to have to read from 38 beginning because I, I, I referred to that in my message. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That was the attitude that, you know, was cultivated. That was supposed to be good in, the, in those times. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. That's what we turn off when we hear those passages. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand, even your, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I'll, I'll refer to that. I'll clarify some things here in a moment. But this is, uh, you, you can concentrate on here, beginning with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Because it seemed proper to do so, no? That was, that was uh, ethical. You love your neighbor, 
hate your enemy. But I tell you, says Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? These were evil people. Supposed to be real sinners, inveterate sinners. Don't even tax collectors do that? Because they were oppressors, by the way. Clarify. Not every people, not, not the, the people who work in the IRS are not necessarily sinful. Let's clarify that. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. <clears throat> so this passage, as you well know, if you read the beginning of, of chapter 5, is part of the famous Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus uh, apparently gave uh, to a multitude seated on the flanks of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And he gave some of the most beautiful, exalted teachings ever known to mankind. You know, so first, let, let me note something here about this sermon and about that passage that I've just read. It is a radical departure, radical departure from the norm at that time when Jesus preached this sermon and, and its principles. Jesus is speaking at that moment to a very rough humanity 2,000 years ago, a very rough religion as well, very insensitive religion, Pharisees and uh, Sadducees and legalism rampant. The best that the Jewish religion could do at the time was to preach uh, this law of an, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was what prevailed for thousands of years in humanity. And that was supposed to be justice at the time. You know, that, that law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was considered a, a way of correcting some excesses. You know, in, in before, you know, this idea was if somebody killed somebody else or, or robbed from somebody else from another tribe, the whole tribe would go and kill not just the offender but also his family and all, all the people in the tribe. It was an excessive kind of uh, vengeance <clears throat> uh, a force that, that prevailed. And, and so this law, the law of Hammurabi, actually it goes back thousands of years before even Judaism. This idea, if you, <clears throat> if you extract an eye from someone or you break a tooth in a fist fight, well, you got to pay with your tooth or with an eye. It was supposed to bring some, sign of, some kind of a proportion, let's say, to human violence. It was a way of regulating vengeance. It was meant to keep violence and vengeance within, you know, appropriate bounds, so to speak. So it was considered an, improve, an improvement from the law of the jungle uh, to prevent things from escalating into wanton violence exaggerated vengeance and destruction, as was the case in humanity's more primitive stages. Now, Jesus, with his uh, unprecedented authority, speaking divinely with God's authority, he preaches a much higher principle. He comes into that violent world, that, that rough, uncouth world, and he says, no, I'm here to bring you a higher revelation, a higher law, something much better that you can use to live good lives. And he says, don't fight hatred with hatred, even if it is proportionate. Go to a higher level. Live according to a higher standard. Vanquish evil and, and vengeance with its very opposite, its very opposite, with love, gentleness, and forgiveness. That is what, you know, this whole thing of the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about opposing a superior principle that comes from the heart of God Himself and, and uh, installing it in this humanity that is, that is full of uh, the opposite, violence and retribution. And you know, that is the very essence of, of the gospel. This is really what distinguishes Christianity from any other religion. It's this insistence if you read the New Testament over and over again, replace vengeance and roughness and aggressiveness with love, gentleness, meekness, generosity, 
it distinguishes the Christianity. This insistence on the principle of love and generosity. And the gospel is, it's, the gospel is unnatural. It's unnatural. Why? Because it goes against the laws of nature. In nature, the, the law of, of the jungle dictates what? That the stronger survive. The big animals eat the little animals. Why is the lion such a, an exalted um, animal, sort of the king of the jungle? A lion is huge. A lion is muscular. A lion has great fangs and claws and courage and aggressiveness. And his, constitu his physical constitution is such that, you know, he's almost unstoppable and invincible. He's aggressive. He's violent. And so he rules the jungle. Nature is based on strength and superiority. Fastness, strength, agility, cunning. These are the elements. The capacity to outmaneuver your opponent. Stealth. These are the things that rule the physical world. Darwin's laws prevail. The, the, the survival of the fittest. That's what rules not just the jungle, but it rules, you know, the human realm as well. Even, even in sophisticated cultures, such as the 21st century, this law, if you look at it, prevails. The rich prey on the poor. Those who have resources get more resources and use them to get even more resources. Those who have access to information, they manipulate that access to place themselves in a position to get more resources. Those who can navigate technology and, and knowledge and science are the ones that make all the money. We, we speak of living in a knowledge-based society. If you know how to Google, if you know how to operate a computer, if you know how to get online, you know, then you can, you can do things these days. If you got stuck back in the days before technology, you have a hard time, don't you? I mean, you know, it is like that. That's why I say, people of God, let's get on the technological um, field. Let's, we, we say, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Put that to, to trial and say, I can learn technology. I can learn to Google. I can learn to, you know, uh, use my computer. You can. It may take you a little bit of time. You may go through some struggle, but don't give up. Stay at it. Believe that God will give you the knowledge, and you will get there. Please. All right? I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Indeed. But, you know, in this world, if you have knowledge, you have power, and you get control of resources. And what happens? Then we can use this knowledge to isolate sometimes those who don't have it and to control them. If you control information, for example, you control how people think, and then you can get resources. Sometimes we even advocate for those very people that we are um, uh, oppressing. You know, many of these corporations, I think Facebook, Google, and so on and so forth, they have this image that they project of, uh, you know, being progressive and liberal. And this. They're manipulators just like any other. And they want to get power. They want to sell their wares. And they use it in all kinds of advantageous way. Why do these owners of these companies get, you know, billions of dollars? Why do they become so rich? They manipulate, and they're buying all kinds of things, newspapers and magazines and movie houses because they can manipulate. They can use knowledge effectively to manipulate, to get more money. Um, and I use this example of technology and, and knowledge, how it is used in our time, because it would seem that in this modern world, we have gone beyond this idea of uh, brute strength. Uh, we've, go, we've gone from living according to the principles of nature and biology into something more exalted, more sophisticated. We see ourselves as, hey, we're beyond these cavemen, troglodytes. We are much more sophisticated. We are much more ethical. But it's still really the same thing. When you look at it, when you analyze it structurally, in this sense, we, we haven't gone too far from the law of the jungle and from living according to the principles of nature and biology. We're still there, only in a different way with, with different labels. Only when we learn to live according to the principles of the spirit. Say that with me, spirit. Only when we live according to the principles of the spirit, of the gospel, and of heaven, do we really enter into a realm that goes beyond nature? As long as we live according to the laws of nature, this will only generate 
more violence, more oppression, more suffering, we become beholden to nature and the nature of this world. And the nature of the prince of this world, he is a Darwinian par excellence. He manipulates, he lies, he oppresses, he exploits, he enslaves, he kills, uh, he possesses, he blinds in order to control. And as long as you live according to the laws of nature, you are living, then you are beholden to the laws of the world and of the prince of the world. And you are his slave. He will control you. He will use you. He will manipulate you. He will control your actions. He will position you to gain advantage from you. Only when we escape the domain of nature do we truly become like God and become children of God. Only then do we, say, recover or acquire the true nature of the Father that we serve. This is why Jesus says in verses 43 to 46 of that passage in Matthew, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Here's the punchline. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do you want to be like God? Do you want to be a child of God? Do you want to have a heavenly nature? Then practice that counterintuitive way of God. He says, he causes God, the Father, he causes his son, his son, to rise on the evil and the good, his enemies, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God has this, his very nature is to love even his enemies, those who despise him, those who don't take him into account, those who are irreverent toward him, those who oppress his children. You know, God doesn't say, hey, no more sun for you today. No more rain for, you know, the next 10 years for you. No, he just, you know, he, he allows all his goods to just fall over everyone because he's, he's a generous father. He gives people the opportunity to repent. He, he's patient with them. And this is the, the nature of the father. And Jesus says, hey, do you want to be real sons and daughters of the father? Then live like him. Practice that as well. We have to choose whether to live as children of heaven or as children of nature and of this world. It's a choice. And we have to make that choice when we enter into the kingdom. I, I, the unfortunate thing is that many people enter into the kingdom, but they choose to continue living according to the, the world and nature. More like animals. No matter how sophisticated you are, if you live according to the laws of nature, you are part of that animal nature and that animal world. When you live according to heavenly principles, you reject the idea of manipulating strength and superiority to your advantage. In order to live as children of heaven, we have to adopt the principles and the methodology of heaven. It's a choice that you have to make. You have to live counter-nature, counter-intuitively. Instead, you have to choose to live according to principles of love, generosity, meekness, gentleness, patience, self-sacrifice. You have to choose not to use your superiority in any way against uh, your opponent. The methodology of heaven, according to Jesus, is to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, and to seek the good of those that you don't like. Nothing more radical than this. This puts the methodology of the world on its head. That's what Jesus does. It takes the world, just flips it upside down. The world says, hate your enemies, or at the very least, get back to them. You know, put poison in their soup. And love your friends and, and treat them well. But Jesus says, no. That, that's the way cavemen and animals live. They love those who belong to their tribe or to their species. That, that's what tribes do, you know, in, in the primitive world. The tribe is the center of the universe. And that's the, the word xenophobia, which, you know, uh, means, it means literally fear of the other. And the primitive world is all about 
me, us, and those who are not us. Any, anybody else is the other out there. And you're not supposed to really cultivate love. You have to cultivate love and protect those who are part of your clan, of your tribe. And that's the, the way of the world. As children of God, Jesus says, you should do as God does. God is patient and generous. As I've said, he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, on his friends and his enemies. Now, here's something very important. This is another point in my sermon. If we take Jesus' words too literally, we will rob them of their practical power. This is why sometimes we turn off and we hear, turn the other cheek. Love those who hate you, you know, do good. Because we, we take, I think, those words too literally and uh, we are not understanding Jesus' intent. We're not bringing those words to their proper proportion. I want to clarify. I'm not neutralizing the, the meaning of, and the content of what he's saying. But I, I want to bring it down to our life because Jesus was very realistic also. He was very prudent. Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point here. You know, hyperbole is when you exaggerate something in order to make it stick. Jesus is using hyperbole to make his point and his teaching memorable by exaggerating a little bit, by zooming it out a little bit. Um, for example, right here in this chapter, Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, in other words, to commit sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, if you've ever been tempted to do that, I have a good psychiatrist I want to recommend to you. Okay. He's not saying, hey, you know, if you look at a woman inappropriately or, or, or you play too many video games, you know, take a knife and just gouge your eye out. No. And he says, um, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, there's truth to that. And, it, you know, it makes, but I think he's exaggerating. He's not saying, hey, if you, make a, if, you, if you stole a candy bar or something like that, go cut your hand off, you know, because you don't want to. He's using it, he, he wants to make the idea stick in your mind. Evidently, he doesn't expect us to take it literally, but to extract the practical content the principle that we shouldn't let go of anything that prevents us from becoming all that God wants us to be or that might cause us to lose our salvation. If a friendship or a, or a sentimental relationship is preventing you from serving the Lord or causing you to offend God, hey, leave that person. If a job is preventing you from being the best Christian that you should be and is causing you bad conscience and, and doing something to oppress people, and to steal from them, even if it's sophisticated, leave that job. If some sort of practice in your life causes you to do things that you know are wrong, hey, morality is so much more important than profit. You know, if a habit in your life, the way you treat others, the way you speak, your mind, whatever, prevents you from being a good Christian, fight it to the you know, tooth and nail and, and extract it from your mind. That is what Jesus is saying. Anything that is an obstacle to you becoming the best believer and son or daughter of God that you can be, fight against it. This is the idea behind his hyperbole. He uses exaggeration to dramatize how important this principle of pleasing God above everything else is and how seriously we should take it. So in this same way, what Jesus is trying to tell us in this passage is that as Christians, we should be ruled by a spirit of generosity, kindness, and goodwill, and gentleness. So when he says, you know, if somebody smacks you with the back of their hand and the right cheek, which is a huge offense, it's adding insult to injury, so to speak. Hey, turn the other cheek. You know, he's using, and that's a, wow, man, that really strikes you. It's dramatic. It's, it's, it wakes you up. He says, to that level, you should practice gentleness. In your life, you should prize gentleness. You should value it. You should make it a governing principle of your life. I don't think he's literally saying that if you're 
walking down Reed Street and somebody all of a sudden, bam, hits you. I'll say, oh, excuse me, sir, here's my other cheek. Won't you hit me there as well? No, I think he's, 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 he's trying to dramatize a principle of life that you can practice without necessarily going to that extreme, but you should exercise it as much as you can. I've spent practically all my conscious life trying to put these principles to practice. I mean, the extreme, I failed miserably, and I still do. Imagine, I mean, if, if he didn't put that high level, we would very easily just be content with the minimal amount. But we have this high level. Jesus practiced it. When he was on the cross, he didn't curse uh, the centurion or, or the soldiers. He blessed them. He asked the Lord to forgive them and so on and so forth. He says, hey, this is the standard, buddy. This is how you have to live. Use that as a standard. Aim for that. And if you don't get there, at least you aimed for it. Imagine if you didn't aim so high, how low you would have gotten. You know, so it is this idea. Our first option, Jesus says, should always be to have a kind, benevolent disposition toward others. We should go out of our way to preserve peace with those around us. We should always give people the benefit of the doubt and assume that they mean well. Before we explode when dealing with difficult people, we should first try to win them over. If at all possible, we should forgive offenses. We should not hold on to grudges. I mean, I could add a thousand prescriptions specifically that, that, that uh, uh, come off of that sublime principle. We should be known for our humility and our meekness. How many of us want to be known for being meek and humble? Come on. Men in particular, we don't want to be known for being meek and humble. We want to be known for being dangerous. And nobody messes with us. That's what, you know, that's what we, we, we want to be respected. We want to be feared. Don't mess with me. I'll be nice to you, but if you mess with me, you're a goner. That's really the principles, you know, of, uh, that so many people live by. And Jesus is saying, hey, turn that around. Make, it, make meekness, humility, compassion, goodness, gentleness, kindness, Make those your goals. Make that your mission and vision statement in life. As Christians, we should be known for getting along well with others, for cultivating harmonious relationships at home and outside our home. We should always be cleaning our mental ledger and forgiving the debts of others. You know that uh, the older days, you know, paper, accountants, you know, banks, we keep a ledger. How much people owe us. And, you know, we charge them for what they owe us. We do it in different ways. And this is what Jesus is saying when he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We take our mental ledger. Ah, oh, so-and-so so offended me. Ha, I'm going to keep him in a cage for the rest of my life and his life. And I'm going to take him out of his cage just to observe his, him just, uh, you know, squirming. Under my analysis and remembering what he did or she did to me. He says, no, open the cage, let them fly out. Keep clean ledgers. Forgive my debts. Because you know you've offended others. You know you've spoken ill of others. You know you've done things that you shouldn't have. Come on. And God forgives you, so shouldn't we also give people that same benefit? And by the way, I'll speak at some point about the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness is another one of those powerful tools that you can use to live a, or an extraordinary life. Uh, keep your, your mind clean of debts. Forgive. And anytime you see some uh, resentment contaminating your mind, you know, fight it as you, as you would fight the devil himself. Because when you keep accounts of, of past offenses inside of you, it poisons the way you live. It distorts the way you live. And it makes you a prey to the devil. It, it's, it's a precinct of the devil inside your mind. He can come there anytime he wants, and from there he can influence your life. Forgive not for the sake of your offender, but for your own sake. We, we should always uh, lean toward making friends of our enemies rather than trying to overcome and vanquish them. We should come to the point where we rejoice when somebody that we had a controversy with, we can finally reconcile with them. You know, I, I don't want to be too specific, but the other day God gave uh, my wife and I the, the joy of having in, in, our, in our house uh, 
a, a person who, you know, for many years we've known them, and they have been uh, kind of, a, I don't know, a, 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 just a, a wound in our back. And, uh, you know, on a couple of times that person offended me. And, uh, you know, the Lord engineered things in such a way that the other day, you know, they, they were there with us uh, talking. God has worked on his life, by the way. And uh, I've always uh, tried to make sure that I act very civilly toward him. Part of it because he sees me going out with the Bible often. <laughs> and, uh, but no, I really, uh, and I rejoiced in welcoming him, him and uh, sharing food with him. And well, I've already revealed a he, it's, it's a he. Uh, I was not watching the internet this morning or Lion of Judah. But anyway, you know, I rejoiced. I thank the Lord. I consider it a victory that that person who has been kind of a, you know, just a, un, 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 how to say it, como? Yeah, that's it, a, you know, gold in my flesh. Um, uh, you know, I could claim him as a, at least a, you know, a good acquaintance and a, even a beginning friend. That's what we should do. We should rejoice because, you know, that is really our goal. In life, and we should consider it a victory when we, when we conquer our enemies by making friends of them. I'm going to speak about that as well sometime, about making friends of enemies. Um, Christians should be known for having a, what I call a benevolent disposition. This means that we should always be found working toward the good and the well-being of others. That should be our dynamic, our motor force. We're always, we're agents of goodness, agents of grace, agents of restitution, agents of life, agents of healing, agents of blessing, agents of provision. If you are walking and there's a need, if you can at all help to solve that need, do it. If, you can, if you're in a situation of uh, conflict and disharmony, work as much as you can to bring reconciliation to that environment. This is, you know, we should derive huge pleasure from being an agent of good wherever we are. We may not achieve it always, by the way. We may not always have the nobility that that kind of attitude presupposes, but we should aim for it. And we should establish it as our goal, always. It means that as much as possible, peace should reign wherever we have any influence. If we have leadership in any kind of, envir of environment, that environment should be known for being a place of peace, fairness, harmony, and goodwill. Whether it's as a father at home, you should, at all, if at all possible, be a source of joy for your family. You should be a, joy, a source of peace and of security. When the mom and children see you walk in, they don't flee into their respective bedrooms. They say, wow, dad is here. That's great. <laughs> you know. They don't bury them, their head in a magazine or in the television because you, you are an agent of blessing and peace and harmony and goodwill. If you're a manager in an office, you, you should exude a, a kind of a, a gas that brings peace to people. Have you ever observed an environment where a neurotic, angry person has control? How many of you have a neurotic boss or have ever had one? Don't, don't raise your hand. You, you don't have to. How many of you have worked with a really, um, you know, difficult person? And they happen to be the manager. They have several people that they have under them. And this is the office where you work. What happens to those people where you have a, an angry individual exercising control? They, they contaminate those around them. They create an environment of anger, conflict. Ill treatment toward others, gossip and complaining, rule, the law of the jungle prevails. Somehow that area turns toxic. And it's a very subtle thing. You know, just the anger in that person um, influences the environment around them. Now, where, where, by the way, Wall Street is often, you know, known to be like that. Corporate America, in many ways, often resembles that. So does the politics that rules America today. You know, there's a lot of rough individuals out there um, exercising influence on both sides, both parties. I mean, this is, this is crazy. The world that we are living in, 
Now, where a healthy, generous person exercises leadership, what happens? Eventually, a positive atmosphere emerges. Laughter, patience, and good attitudes rule. Things get done more quickly and effectively. Business prospers. Clients become more loyal and forgiving. There's something about goodness that influences and brings on the blessing of God. I've seen it all throughout my life. The shalom of God enters where God is welcome and his principles are welcome. If only corporations would understand that. If only uh, principals of schools would understand that. If only politicians would understand that. There's something, when you are placed in a position of authority, God recognizes authority, by the way. And so he recognizes that you are in authority, whether you, he wants to or not, you are in authority of a place. And so if you are living according to the principles of God and, and managing them and channeling them, God will make his life and his goodness pervade your environment because you are in authority. If you are in political authority, it is like that. If you're in authority over a business or your home and you are judging and governing according to the principles of God, you know, he will make you a channel of his blessing, his life, his prosperity, because that's what God is all about. There is huge power, power in the ethic of love that Jesus proposes. Generally, people resist putting this kind of ethic into practice for two reasons. You know, despite the, the power that it has, there's an, an important point that I want to make here. Please pay attention to this. There, there are two reasons why people resist employing this kind of powerful ethic and putting it into practice, despite all its advantages. Number one, listen to this. One of the reasons why we resist making love the ruling power of our life is because we mistakenly believe that if we live according to that love rule, that we will be trampled upon, we will be abused and oppressed. People will take advantage of us. And so we believe that, hey, if you're too gentle, if you're too meek, if we're too patient, if you don't strike right away, they're going to get the better of you and they're going to abuse you. So we believe that and so we, we hold back. But what people fail to realize is that, as I said before, this is the most powerful way to live. It's the most powerful way to live. When you live according to the principles of heaven, you enlist heaven in your favor, God becomes your ally and your defender. He fights for you. He makes sure you always prosper. He blesses and favors you. He fills you with emotional health. When I have had the courage to act that way, I have discovered over and over again the extraordinary power of that attitude. My mother was a woman who was able to live like that for decades. And I saw what it did for a frail, simple, uneducated woman. Um, and, I, you know, that stuck with me always. And I don't always live it, I'm telling you. My natural temperament fights against that. But when I do have the opportunity to put it into practice, the results don't uh, make themselves wait too long. Ultimately, God neutralizes your enemies. He frustrates their plans. He gives you the desires of your heart because you're honoring him and you're honoring his principles. And I'll, I'll speak about that. You know, there's a beautiful passage in Proverbs that says that when a man's ways are pleasing to God, he makes even his enemies dwell in peace with him. It's an amazing statement. And this is what David means when he says in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies. They're looking at me and they're hating me as I eat my pork chop and my piece of turkey and my delicious mashed potatoes. <laughs> and they're, they're cursing me out and I'm having the best time of, you know, it's like that sometimes. The people who hate you, they're cursing you out. They're, you know, gnawing their, their knuckles and, and there you are having a great time, enjoying the favor of God, the blessing of God. They're, they're um, embittering themselves, and you're enjoying the goodness of God. So remember that. You will ultimately, you know, the other reason I would say a third one is that it's systemic. 
One of the reasons why we don't practice goodness like that is because it takes sometimes longer to see the results. Because the effects of that force are systemic. They have to sort of run through the system until they get to the point of leverage and result. And since it takes a longer time for us to see the benefit, uh, you know, and it takes a while to, you know, get that engine going and to live within that system uh, and to see the results systemically over the course of your life and over different sectors of your life and your relationships and your inner life and your physical health, it takes a while. And sometimes the results are not as clear, but they're there, believe me. Because if you see the curve of your life, you see it going up and ascending. Because the blessing of God is manifesting itself. God is a systemic God. He doesn't just operate on a particular point. He operates on the whole system. And so the whole system is filled with the the eye of God. If your eye is good, then all around you is good. That's what it says. But since we don't see that many times, we, we don't practice it. But it is there. So you won't be exploited. You will be blessed And it will manifest itself in all kinds of subtle and evident ways throughout your life. Now, there's a second very obvious way why people don't um, practice this goodness, this love. And that's because by, by not getting even themselves with their enemies, often we are depriving ourselves of the unhealthy satisfaction of exercising revenge ourselves. Isn't revenge sweet at some level? You know, they, they say that revenge is best served cold, you know. It's like you wait and finally you see your, your enemy squirm and suffer and you delight in seeing them sink to the bottom of the ocean. And there's a pleasure to that. There's a demonic animal pleasure to seeing your enemy suffer and you have been the instrument of that suffering. You have brought them to justice. So we, we have to deprive ourselves of a, of a sickly unhealthy pleasure when we leave uh, uh, vengeance to God, when we uh, omit revenge and we don't indulge our own aggressive feelings toward those who seek to cause us harm, there's a certain pleasure in getting even with people you dislike and, and, and seeing them suffer through your own personal intervention. And, you know, we like that pleasure. We relish it. We don't want to avoid it. It's like not, like not eating a good steak just sits there on the plate and you say, no, I'm not going to eat it. But let me tell you this, by abstaining from uh, the pleasure of harming your enemies, um, Christians instead are unleashing the forces of God's kingdom actually against their enemies. That's, that's, the, that's the ironic thing, you know. You are using a much powerful, much more powerful instrument to get justice. This is why the Bible says, do not seek revenge for yourselves in any shape or form. Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. Romans 12, 19. What does it say? Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's wrath. If you occupy that space, then God cannot occupy it. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In a sense, if you, what it's saying here is that if you take revenge by yourself, you are stealing from God. He's the one who gives retribution. You know, Sam was talking about, you know, the civil war. You know, the civil war killed proportionately more people than most wars in all of humanity. Think like a million Men in America, you're talking about proportion. At that time, the 19th century, were killed in the Civil War. It caused incredible pain and destruction. And as Sam was pointing out, not only Abraham Lincoln, but many people believed that it was divine retribution for all the sins of slavery that America had committed. And look at all the pain that... uh, Discrimination and racism has caused this country still bleeding from all the the sin. How many trillions of dollars do you think it has cost America? Slavery has cost America. Incarceration and, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands and thousands of men and women in our jails. America is one of the most violent nations in the world, black and white. 
It's a wreck. Because a land that is built on injustice, riches that are built on injustice, and also later on the, you know, the depredations against the Native Americans, and so is Latin America as well with all the craziness that went on there. Even today, you know, people who exploit others, they don't realize that the money that they make, it, it just oozes through their fingers in all kinds of uh, elusive ways in their marriages, the health of their children, their own emotional life. They're killing themselves. They're puncturing their heart with all kinds of illicit actions. But they're making the money. See, the money is coming into the bank. They just see the money coming into the bank, but they don't see the hole on the other side. That is, you know, the money and the gain is fleeing in all kinds of ways. I much prefer $10 that I can eat with a good conscience than a million dollars that will not allow me to sleep well, that will contaminate my mind, that will co contaminate and poison my marriage, my emotional life, the life of my succeeding generations. You know, why do you want a huge house when that house has been purchased with blood and with the poverty of others? It, it, it's a, just a, the enemy will hypnotize you and give you something here so that you'll become so obsessed with it that you don't realize that all the money is fleeing out in other kinds of intangible ways. How much money would uh, a, many billionaires pay to have a good marriage, to have children that love them, to have healthy kids, to have, uh, you know, a good stomach that can enjoy the food that they eat, not having to live with pills every day? You know, it, it, how, how do you figure, how do you measure goodness and, and joy and blessing? Isn't it better to live in a three-bedroom house or two-bedroom house than to live in a huge mansion if you can enjoy that house? And you can enjoy that 14 by 14 bedroom instead of a 1 by 70 by 70 with all the bathrooms and all the other stuff around, but you can't enjoy it. Your nervous system, which is really what determines whether that is a good place or not, is, you know, is shot. So the, the physical stuff around you, it doesn't mean anything because it is your nervous system that interprets the meaning of all that physical stuff. The physical stuff is not anything in itself. It is your nervous system that makes it good. And if your nervous system is shot and destroyed by your evil ways, then you might as well not have it. But Satan blinds you to not reason that way. See? And so you have to learn to be better. It's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul is saying is that by doing good to our enemies, we will ultimately be putting them to shame. We'll be embarrassing them. We'll ultimately be making things even more difficult for them. We will have the higher ground. When we leave vengeance to God, we will be even more effective than if we took vengeance upon ourselves. In the end, we will get away with it, but in a way that doesn't sully our hands, doesn't contaminate our spirit, doesn't make us children of the devil, doesn't give him entry into our space that he can manipulate and continue. He will give us the temporary joy of direct vengeance and then extract, multiply times benefit from the favor. It's like a ma the mafia, he may, you know, or, 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 or some cheap uh, drug distributor. He may give you the first drug to use, but then when you're addicted, he'll charge you with great interest. By the way, you know, this is infinite, this theme. You know, how, how do people manipulate? Look at YouTube when it started, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15, whatever. You know, YouTube was free. You go in there, you know, you watch whatever you want, no ads, no nothing. Slowly they start creeping in ads. How many of you have noticed that over the past few years? And then they start offering you, if you want an ad-free experience, pay $19.99 a month. And we won't bother you with ads. That is demonic. That is the manipulation. That is the demonic principle at work. You know, it is slowly taking the victim and addicting them to something. And then when they're positioned just where you want them, you hit them. And you control them. 
This is the, the principle of the world. I mean, it may not be totally bad. It's just, you know, business. That's the way business works, we say. But ultimately, it is the law of the jungle. It is manipulation. It is positioning yourself in order to oppress, control, extract benefit from. This is what the enemy does. And uh, this is what, you know, we can't afford to do. We can't work with Satan and his systems and then not expect that he will not charge us for it. He will charge you for it. He allows you to do some things. He fools you. He blinds you. And then he says, okay, buddy, now you're mine. Now you have to work by my ways. And he will never do good to anyone, even if he wanted to. He's a psychopath. God rebuke him. When we leave vengeance to God, we will be even more effective than if we took vengeance upon ourselves. Because we leave the reckoning to God. And God will always be more effective and thorough than if we carried it out ourselves. As a matter of fact, when we give vent to our anger and our desire for retribution, all we are doing is perpetuating the cycle of anger, violence, aggressiveness, retribution. We are simply, you know, contaminating our environment out of anger. We're cutting off our nose to spite our face. We don't realize that. We don't realize the systemic, the systemic costs of cultivating certain things. Because we're too blind. We're too, we're too engrossed in that moment of satisfaction. And we're not seeing the whole system. When an angry husband curses his wife or controls his children, you know, he's not seeing that. He, he's part of the body. You know, if I take a, 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 a scissors and I cut my finger off, this is the most stupid thing I can do. Why? Because my finger is connected to my arm and my arm is connected to my nerves and my nerves are connected to my brain. And it's not my finger that's going to hurt. I'm going to hurt. And we have to understand that society is a body. It's a, it's a network of interrelated pieces. And when you hurt one part of the, even though you get, get great delight from that, ultimately you will feel the results of it because you are part, you are connected to the central nervous system. You will feel it. This is why we shouldn't oppress, kill, maim, destroy, exploit others. Ultimately, you are part. That, that finger is connected to your ear and you will feel it in your ear sooner or later. If we only understood that, if we only understood the systemic nature of, of uh, life and the universe, we would not be so silly as to allow ourselves to be exploited by becoming so focused on a particular situation that we forget the entire environment and the entire system around us. When we engage in this desire for retribution, we become the victims of the very thing that we are trying to extinguish. Instead of inner peace, we simply create the conditions for more anger, both inside and outside ourselves. We make our enemies more, more entrenched, more persistent, and we are forced then to be always on the alert for more offense and more violence. The, the aggressiveness that we generate will find a way out. It will manifest itself in all kinds of systemic ways. But we got our way, though, see? We got what we wanted for the moment. But the, sooner or later, that finger that you cut off will send the message to the brain and your whole body will feel it. It may be a few milliseconds later, but it will happen. And then you'll have it for a long time. The joy was momentary, but the consequence was pervasive and long-term. I'm, I'm drawing to a close here. There, there is a satanic dynamic. Call it that. It's satanic dynamic that rules the natural world. Satan is the ruler of the natural, biological world. The only way to neutralize that dynamic is by adopting the weaponry of heaven, by understanding and discerning its spiritual nature, and then surfing the spiritual nature of the world of heaven. This is what the Bible means about when we put on the armor of light. Because Christians, we, we don't fight with the weapons of the flesh, of nature. We fight with the weapons of spirit, eternity. And these weapons, Jesus says, they're more powerful. They're, they're powerful for the tearing down of principalities and powers. Is what Paul says. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not carnal. They're not natural. They're not biological. They're not animal. They're not limited to time and space. The weapons of our warfare are 
spiritual. They are powerful for the tearing down of principalities and powers. Talk about power. A gun cannot kill a demon, but love can. That's why the weapons that we use are so much more powerful. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt, debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the entire law. Later on in verse 10, he says, Love does no, does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then later on in verse 12, Paul says, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. We live in these times, latter days, and we need to stop children's games. We need to take on the seriousness of living according to the law of love. When we use love to manage our relationships, we become invincible, my friends. The devil cannot manipulate us. We become inaccessible to him. Because there is very little in our nature that he can connect to. He can't find the plug to connect. We live in a world where conflict and hatred have become the defining force. And now more than ever, because the light is almost, you know, the, the light is almost here. Jesus come and invade this world, this fallen, sad world. Now more than ever, we must refuse to live and fight with the weapons of darkness and aggressiveness. And to adopt the armor of light and love. Let us embrace that right now. Uh, and I say to the Father, Lord, I failed a thousand times, a million times in living according to this thing that I'm preaching right now. I preach it and I don't really even fully understand it. I have so, so long to walk toward it still. But I embrace it again. I invite you to embrace it this morning as well. If you're at home, if you're here, let us take our weaponry, take it off. Take your gun off. Take your sword off. Take that pointed language off. Take that wit that disarms and neutralizes your opponents. Take the arguments that uh, win conversations and humiliate people. Take all the arguments that you have learned to point out the injustices of people and their sinfulness and why they should go straight to hell, take it all out. Drop it on the floor and don, put on the armor of light. Congregation Lion of Judah embraces the law of love, of accepting others who are not like me, of submitting to each other, of seeing the, the, the beauty and the divinity in the most fallen human being, the worst dressed, the poorest, the most ravaged by sin and brokenness. We choose to see the, the divine light in them this morning, and we will always be agents of redemption for them. We will be a community of forgiveness, patience, love, affirmation, appreciating diversity, the richness that all these different cultures bring to each other. We will not be on the lookout for offense. We will assume the best of people. We will not reveal all that we see too quickly. We will have an eye that is generous and forgiving and that tolerates bad smells and bad actions and ugly statements and actions. We will love, love, love. We will walk like nights of light and love and blessing. Father, make this the ruling principle of this congregation. We renounce anything that kills, oppresses, demeans, violates, abuses, Adopt superiority toward anything. Lord, we, we refuse it. Satan, we renounce your ways. We renounce it with every fiber of our being. This community begs 
the, the light of God and the beauty of God's kingdom to just control and govern everything that we do and forgive us when we're not able to be at that height, Father. But today, right now, we embrace every word of your gospel and we celebrate it. The Apostle Peter leave, leaves us with one word. It says, Firstly, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Receive the blessing of God this morning. We began with a blessing and we end with a blessing. May your homes be filled with light and the goodness of God. May we be bearers of the divine love of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.